Uh, Matthew chapter 7, I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. This is our preaching section. We're going to kind of give a broad overview of where Jesus is going to conclude the Sermon on the Mount. Just listen to these verses up front. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And the last thing someone says in an important conversation is usually the most important thing that you need to hear. And Jesus is bringing the conclusion to his sermon, Sermon on the Mount, in this section, verses 12 through 29. So he's framing up the finale of everything that he's been saying and preaching, and we need to listen. Jesus is doing what every good preacher must do and is called to do, and that is bringing a congregation to or the hearers to a decision point. You need to come to a point of choosing whether you are siding with with what's being argued for or taught or explained or rejecting. You're receiving or you're rejecting at this point when you come under the hearing of a preacher. Jesus is the preacher of preachers, the prince of preachers, and he is calling for hearers to pick a side Choose a side. Are you going to side with Christ or are you going to side with the world? Are you going to side with the world of religiosity, the world of paganism, or with Christ? And this is a message that Jesus has been saying all through his sermon, but really he becomes very poignant to make a dividing line at this point. Something that I've been trying to put before us under the themes of worshiper or consumer. Are you coming as a Christian to give, a self-sacrificing Christian or a consumer to take? Are you viewing church as a option in the week, uh, something that you do like going to the grocery store, filling up the car with gas, things you do around town, you go to church and go on with life? Or do you come with the significance of a converted heart, a transformed life? You've been brought from life, uh, death to life, and so you come to give rather than to consume, rather than to grade, rather than to you know, sit and, and um, scrutinize, you come to, to receive blessing by, by giving sacrifice of, a sacrifice of heart to God. Really, there's two races. There's the race of Adam, which is the unbelievers, and there's the race of the second Adam, which is uh, Christians. There's the line of Adam, the line of Christ. There's Cain, there's Abel, there's Jacob, there's Esau, there's Israel. And there's Egypt, there's Jesus, and there's the Pharisees, there are the sheep, and there are the goats. There is light, and there is darkness. There are those who will, in Revelation, take the mark of the beast, and those who will overcome, and overcome even to death. I wrote a blog this week, you don't have to read it, but we do send them out, and as a provocative title, I said, you know, why taking the vaccine or getting the vaccine is not taking the mark of the beast. I gave some reasons for that Um, from, but even from scripture and you just look at what scripture says very specifically to apostatize and to overtly bow the knee to the antichrist is a far cry from um, taking a vaccine like any vaccine. 
Um, though I, you know, don't trust the world's agendas and ideologies, um, I'm not saying that, but I am saying that we need to be precise and understand that that being inside Christ is should be an obvious thing versus an obscure thing. There, there is no middle-of-the-road Christianity. You are in Christ, you're participating as a worshiper in church, or you are outside of Christ, or you're pretending to be in Christ when you're really outside of Christ. Ephesians 2.19 says, uh, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if, it had been, if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. Listen to this, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. These designations are, again, your disposition, one or the other. It's all through scripture. People gather to give or they try to come as a way to try to force their way into the kingdom through force of will or their works. And that's not Christian. That's not Christianity. So Jesus is saying, pick a side, pick a side. What does this look like? Well, through um, the final verses, 12 to 29, let me just give you a big outline, kind of like a sermon series that I'm going to open up here. And the first would be, the first way to pick Jesus' side is to love like Jesus, as we're going to cover um, in a few moments, drawing the line in terms of someone's attitude. Are you selfless or selfish? And the second is lead to Jesus, love to Jesus, lead to Jesus. That's leading yourself to Christ. Where are you going in this world? Are you submitting your life to Christ or the world? Number three, learn from Jesus. Jesus is drawing the line between someone who learns truth or and can discern error or is clueless. You're either clued in or you are clueless. You're either a learner or you're ignorant to what is really going on. You know people by their fruits. And then number four, live for Jesus. This is um, evaluating someone's life as you stand before the throne of God one day. Did you live the truth? Did you truly live for Jesus or was it all a sham lie? Are you pretending and play acting? That's verses 21 to 23. Finally, listen to Jesus. So love, Je- love like Jesus, lead to Jesus, learn from Jesus, live for Jesus, listen to Jesus. Jesus draws the line between those who will heed his warning or reject his warnings altogether. If you ignore Jesus' warning about the end, then that is damnable. If you listen, if you're a hearer of the word of God, then that is saving. These are dividing lines. And so we're going to look at the first one. The first way someone sides with Jesus is to love like Jesus. Love like Jesus. What does that look like? It's been called the golden rule of verse 12. Jesus is uh, really beginning his ending with a full and complete summary. A full and complete summary. He's summarizing all of the law and the prophets by saying, do this. So whatever, verse 12, you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the message of the Bible. That's what he's saying. What does that mean? Well, if you begin with uh, the phrase, so whatever you wish others would do, you could actually transpose the word um, everything there. You could translate this, therefore, everything you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. Everything, everything. This isn't just a one-off moment. This isn't a dramatic moment where someone is 
is in dire straits and so you choose to love them. That's true that we are to do that. But at the same time, this is every interaction. Human interaction really describes and defines your quality of life, how you feel about your days in terms of interactions and talking to people. And Jesus is calling Christians to do so in loving ways with this manner of love. It can become very problematic when things break down. But I want to make a clarification early on, and that is the misnomer that Christianity is defined by self-sacrifice. I believe that. The Bible teaches that. Jesus did sacrifice himself. But I think it's important to understand that when we give ourselves in self-sacrifice, that does not mean that we are not thinking about ourselves at all. Even Hebrews 12 says that for the joy set before Christ, the race set before him for the joy he went to the cross. What does that mean? What does it mean that we're to be joyful and rejoicing as we give? How do we strike that balance? There are cult-like mindsets that say self-sacrifice is completely shutting yourself off as if you don't think about yourself at all when you give to others. That kind of um, sociopathic logic ultimately will lead you into cults. It, you know, it's a cult-like religion as if we could shut ourselves off and, and isolate or go into a monastery and just, just in the name of giving, we're shutting ourselves off from the joy that we are to enjoy in life naturally. Naturally. What does that mean? Well, we naturally care for ourselves. Our physiology will care, care for itself. If you don't eat or sleep, eventually your body will shut itself down to recover. It will store fat to survive um, what you do or do not do for yourself. There's a vasovagal um, mechanism that if you're undergoing enough pain, your body will shut down like a cell phone. So there's that. There's women who are born with a maternal instinct who desire to raise children, who desire to love children. Grandmothers, this is Mother's Day, right, who desire to do that. That's, that's a form of selfishness, but it's not sinful selfishness. It's a form of loving yourself because you enjoy it. And we need to give ourselves permission to be human, to love art, to love science, to, to love creation, to love relationships. That's natural delight that is not lust, it's love. When Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's proving the fact that we inherently love ourselves. Paul said the same in Ephesians 5, 29, uh, love your wives and you love them as your own flesh. Why? Ephesians 5, 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. We eat, we, we drink, we, you know, we sleep, we take care of ourselves. We also delight in things. And it's not wrong to do that. It's normal. It's necessary. Solomon's wisdom through Ecclesiastes talks about enjoyment. The parables are where Jesus talks about nature and households and businesses. Paul talks about athletics and work and quotes artists. Peter says, live with your wife in an understanding way. Why? So that your prayers won't be hindered. So your, your Christian life won't just be shut off. So you live and you listen. And so there are self-oriented motivations that are righteous motivations within, within our lives. 
It's not wrong to be selfish in that way, but loves can easily become lust. Goals can become idols. You can become uh, a narcissist. You can become self-consumed like Nebuchadnezzar was who fell to self-absorption. You remember he's walking out and looking over Babylon that he believed he had built, walking on the terrace of the royal palace above Babylon, and the king answered in talking to himself, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? And God then reduced him to an animal-like existence where he's eating uh, the grass of the field for seven years. At the same time, I want to say that There is joy to be had in the Christian life. And I think a lot of times we don't give ourselves the biblical permission to just be normal and just enjoy things. Delight yourself in the Lord and what? He'll give you the desires of your heart. Give you the best life that you could want if you will just but delight in him. It's more blessed to give than to receive as we give, we receive. And what I'm not doing is I'm not... Um, trying to transpose biblical delight and joy with self-esteem. Uh, where Christian counselors, quote-unquote, will say, you have to first love yourself before you can love your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. So you have to really have a high self-esteem before you could ever love somebody else. That's not biblical. The idea is that you will naturally love yourself. And if you're submitted to God's plan and his will, then you will, you will love other people. You'll sacrifice for other people. And God will give you blessing back for that. And understanding that I think is so important. How do you know if you're a couple, if you should get married? married? Well, the question I usually will ask someone in premarital counseling is, do you um, enjoy your relationship in a way that it brings the best version of you out. You know, do you like yourself when you're with that person? That's not a self-esteem thing. That's just being self-aware, being self-aware. Marriage should never be done by force or guilt or something like that. It's is the best version of you on display when you're together, when you're trying to figure out if you're supposed to be one flesh relationship, the idea of love yourself, like yourself, forgive yourself. These are all forms of self-worship and humanism, but delighting in the Lord or when John said in 1 John 1, 1 to 4, these things I've written to you, talking about communing with Christ, I've written this to you that your joy may be full and complete. That's Christianity. We have to give ourselves permission to enjoy God, enjoy relationships, enjoy the world that is his around us. It's the mindset where we see um, children that we, you know, either have discipled or are our offsprings where offspring where first third John one four. I have no greater joy than to see my children walking in the truth. That's apex joy is to see your kids love Jesus. It's incredible. Well, how does this apply to verse 12? So whatever you wish that others would do to you. In other words, when you're in a need, how would you want to be treated? This is just being self-aware. How would I want to be treated? Ask yourself that question and then do also to them. Ask yourself, how would I want to be treated? And then answer it with God's word and say, that's exactly how I'm going to treat that person. And by doing that, by boiling to the Bible down to this level of simplicity, guess what happens? You're fulfilling, you're, you're fulfilling the whole point of the law and the prophets, which is Jesus' way of saying, 
Genesis to Malachi, all of what had been written up to this point is about Jesus and doing this. Now, Jesus, for several chapters, has been unmasking false interpretations of the Old Testament, legalism that's being um, you know, laid on people's shoulders from Pharisees, false teaching, giving people permission to hate, giving people permission to lust in their hearts. As long as they don't break the law, as long as they don't cross a legal line, we don't have to deal with your heart at all. And Jesus is exposing all of that, saying everything is about the heart. Everything is about true love and true selflessness, not religious selflessness or not legalism, but true selflessness where you're loving others and enjoying that in the Lord to give yourself permission for that. J.C. Ryle says, how many intricate questions would be decided at once if this rule were honestly used? It's what Jesus modeled. He was rich and he became poor for our sakes that we might become rich in him. He though in heaven, did not um, consider, consider that position a thing to grasp onto, but took the form of a servant. As the King James Version puts it, he made himself of no reputation. He took on humanity, um, adding that to his deity so that he could serve us here on earth and clarify God to us and be the sacrifice for us and be the high priest for us and atone for us and also be the one who's at the finish line welcoming us as we pray through Christ to his glory as Christians here on earth. How do you want to be treated? We should want to um, ask ourselves that question. And it's a tough question to ask. Um, the wise, um, you know, false religions of Confucius. Um, he said in 500 BC, what, do, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. <laughs> it's kind of a selfless half measure here. Rabbi Hillel, what is, he's 30 years before Christ, what is hateful to yourself, do not to someone else. So it's the idea of self-protection. But what Jesus is saying is, Full, without any um, inhibition, full love to people, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Just give. And out of that worshipful spirit, not as a consumer, but a worshiper, you will receive blessing back. Side with Jesus. Love in this way. Live in this way. Serve in this way. Go for it and watch God bless you as you love others. The social justice trend is indicting the church and it's leveraging a phrase like love your neighbor. And um, really what it's doing is it's trying to manipulate the church into a spiral of false guilt where you say, I can't, I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. If the gospel says we have to love our neighbor, what, how can I pass by a neighbor? What am I supposed to do in that situation? It's hard, right? But when is it ever going to be enough? That's my question. That's my question. You can't program for this kind of love. That's putting the cart before the horse. The gospel transforms our hearts and we love him because he first loved us. He transformed us and then out of that, we serve people. We'll see a need, we'll meet a need, but you can never program the church enough to meet needs in a way that's gonna earn your way into heaven. And I think that's what the social um, justice 
Um, wrong gospel, wrong direction is producing. People are um, falling prey to social activism and social activism will never be enough to achieve and measure for what Christ requires for us to get into heaven. When will it tip the scales for us as a professing Christian to do enough social activism to get into heaven? The gospel is about having a changed heart. The gospel is about having saving faith where we are transformed in an instant by grace through faith alone, not by works, not by adding some program that does not save. It will not save. Now, I am thankful that we do things. We have Awana as an outreach. We have radio ministry as an outreach. It goes to the villages. We have summer missionaries that are coming that we're facilitating to, to go out to um, village areas and camp ministry. We support um, outreach. Our, our Christian school is outreach. It, it's preaching the gospel to kids who are five years old through 17, 18 years old all the time. It's a 24-7 outreach and outpost and evangelism and edification ministry that's happening all the time. We're going to honor some of the graduates from Grace. It's, these are ways to program for reaching out to the Christian and community and to the non-Christian community. We do those things, but that's, that's not defining the gospel. It's the fruit of the gospel. And what happens is, is within theological, even coalitions, people are saying that you don't even have the gospel if you don't do certain things. But when is it ever going to be enough? I think that is a um, kind of a red herring. It's, it's, it's a way to confuse people for what it looks like to be zealous in life and to love people and to, to ask this question of themselves and to follow through in this way, fulfilling the law and the prophets. This, in essence, is, it's the lead-in to verse 13. What does it mean to be on the, um, the narrow road? How do you get on the narrow road? You're someone who sides with Jesus, and first of all, you love like Jesus, and then secondly, you're living toward Jesus. You're living, you're leading yourself to Jesus. That's the second point. Love like Jesus, now lead to Jesus. Jesus here has summarized the law and the prophets, and now he opens the door to the kingdom. Lead to Jesus. Now, this might sound like a forced point and sort of forced language with me using, you know, L's as, as words to remember these points by lead to Jesus. What I mean by that is lead yourself to Jesus and ask yourself this question, which road am I on? Am I on the narrow road or am I on the wide road? Am I leading my life toward Jesus? That's what verses 13 through 14 says. Jesus is now bringing things to a crossroad. And he's saying, choose Jesus or choose everything else. The gospel is exclusive, not all inclusive. Let me tell you what that means plainly. A narrow road is like a, like a thin, um, a thin thread from our perspective in terms of who is on it. And, and in terms of the world's population, seven to eight billion people. How wide is a wide road? Seven to eight billion people wide. Most are on it. Few find the narrow road, the little thin line that people are following Christ on. The, the, it's like it's, it's just think of the, the people through all the ages of all the time, all the time in church history who've ever believed they're on the, the narrow road versus the wide road that leads to Destruction, eight million 
or billion people wide. Sounds harsh, but really there is only one way to salvation and Jesus is it. He calls himself the door. If you want to be a sheep, you have to go through him and be a part of the flock. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. The language is clear here, but through him. That's it. I am the way, I'm the truth, but through me. It's only through Christ, no other way. People want to make it where you can have nominal Christians, middle-of-the-road Christians. You can have people who are all wrapped up into being inspired by social justice, social activism, and they have one foot in the church, and they're inspired that way and excited about those programs. But really, they're living like the devil. They're living like the world. They don't love Christ. They have no relationship with him at all. They're completely duped by this social activism movement, trying to trying to replace inspiration for a life in the Holy Spirit. And inspiration is wolves, uh, wolves in sheep clothing in terms of regeneration in the heart. I'm dead serious with that. I was with a bunch of pastors one time in Southern California, and the question was asked, you know, why are these movements so large? Why do you have Martin Luther King Day that is um, dominating, dominating Christian culture with the, the, the gospel coalition? Why was that such a big deal? And my response to that is because it inspires people. I'm not against celebrating Martin Luther King Day Jr. I'm not um, uh, against um, trying to make things better in our world. But my problem is where people will transpose that inspiration with true Christianity. It's not the same thing. People are non-Christians are inspired by all kinds of social activism all the time. They love it. And people who want to fill their churches, fill the church with those kinds of things and attractions where people go, man, I'm up on step. I feel good about life. I'm distracted from what bothers me and what's going wrong. And I can give in this way. And that's getting me into the kingdom. That's a lie. That's a lie. Somebody's got to call it out, and Jesus does here. That, that's not it. It's a narrow road that finds Jesus and finds the kingdom. That's the door. It's a narrow road, not the wide road that leads to destruction. You have um, grace, not works. You have light, not darkness. Truth, not lies. Love, not lust. A hard road, not an easy road. A worshiper, not a consumerist. A narrow gate that could be likened to a turnstile. It's uh, just something like a subway station where you're, just, you're, you're able to get through because you come with no religious baggage. You come without works. You come just by grace. Just let me in. Let me through. Only by faith. Only by Christ. I can't save myself. And he lets you in. He lets you in. He brings you through. It's going through the eye of the needle, proverbially speaking. You can't have your baggage to try to get you through. It's a gate that only is big enough for you to come through by faith. John Bunyan, um, uh, pastor from the 1600s, is kind of a Christian history, church history hero of mine. He was a tinker. He used to, um, you know, build and do things and um, was a craftsman. And and he became a preacher. And he was from Bedfordshire, uh, England. I've never been there. I used to play on a club um, water polo team around here. And there was a guy, you know, you get people from the UK here. And so you hear the accent, where are you from? I'm from Bedfordshire. I'm like, oh, have you ever heard of uh, John Bunyan? Well, yes, I have. How do you know him? Well, let me tell you, you know, talk all about John Bunyan. But Bunyan was a, he was a guy who defied the government 
because the government, I know this will sound very foreign to us um, in our thinking, but the government was asserting pressure on the churches to assert control and to manipulate worship and what people could do or could not do. And so they were enforcing the law that you had to worship by using the Book of Common Prayer. I don't think the Book of Common Prayer was the problem as much as it was a symbol of forcing the church to worship in a way that um, they did not want to be required to do that. And and so Bunyan um, defied that uh, mandate and ended up in jail. So he's in jail and he had to preach to his church that would gather around the walls outside the um, jail yard and he would preach over the wall to them on Sunday mornings. And then during the week he would write and he wrote a book called the Pilgrim's Progress, the dangerous journey, and then it was retitled The Pilgrim's Progress. And it's basically an allegory depicting the Christian life in terms of a Christian's conversion experience. It's like hearing a testimony through an allegory. And we understand that when someone is saved, they're saved on the spot, in that moment, by grace, through faith, and God changes them light to dar- um, from darkness to light, dead to life. But Bunyan, what he's doing is he's not working from heaven down in terms of the perspective. He's working from the ground up in terms of what it, what the experience is for someone to be converted. And if you've heard people's testimonies, a lot of times they don't talk about this moment in time where they're converted as much as this journey of thinking through truth, hearing things, being witnessed to, a significant person, a sermon where things kind of awakened in their life. Right, And that's what Bunyan is describing here in this allegory. And I think that's what makes it so powerful. A lot of people read it and have read it. It's the second most uh, published, hard copy published book, um, second to the Bible. Uh, But this is conversion from um, the allegory's perspective. Just listen to this. It's uh, Christian, who is the main... um, Um, character in the allegory and he's fleeing the city of destruction which is a picture of the world and he comes to up to evangelist this man who gave him a parchment roll and there was written within fly from the wrath to come this is old english just bear with me some in your inner king james version you know these and thou's here we go the man therefore read it and looked upon evangelist very carefully and said whither must i fly then evangelist pointing with his finger over a very wide field do you see yonder wicket gate wicket meaning like croquet you, you see the arch do you see that arched gate the man said no then he said Said the other, do you see yonder shining light? He said, I think I do. Then said evangelist, keep that light in your eye and go up directly thereto. So shalt thou see the gate at which when thou knockest, it shall be told thee what thou shalt do. The light here is a picture of the word of God um, being illumined in the heart. A lot, of, a lot of people hear scripture, they hear truth, they grow up hearing the 23rd Psalm, they grow up hearing John 3.16, they grow up hearing the Romans road, you hear about how we're all sinners, they hear about eternal life, they hear about eternal left, death, they maybe even will hear something about a wide road that leads to destruction versus a narrow road, gospel, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. But until God turns the lights on, until it becomes meaningful in the heart of a person, they're not being saved. And what Bunyan is 
it's describing here is a person who's, who sees the way, sees the narrow gate, or perhaps can't quite make it out yet, but the word of God is wooing and working in his heart as he journeys ahead, a lot like our testimonies, as we walk through our lives and we go, oh, I do believe. A lot of times in retrospect, we frame up what happened to us at looking at the scripture later and going, oh, That's when I believed. That's when I became born again. That's when I got an appetite for truth. That's when it all made sense. That's when all the coins that were loaded in the machine hit and it all came down, right? And and then you understood. And that's what um, Bunyan is representing here. It's choosing Christ. It's enter by the narrow gate. Enter, go that way. Verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Hear that warning. It's easy to be an unbeliever. The gate is wide. It's popular to be an unbeliever. A lot of people enjoy being an unbeliever. You have to be warned not to be an unbeliever. You have to love what God loves and defy what God defies. I mean, the pride flags that are being um, flown underneath every or on every embassy in our world um, that, you know, it's sad what it's representing in our country, right? It's sad, but at the same time, it's very, very clarifying. Narrow road gospel says biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, the family, children being born, grandchildren being born, um, the, the clarity of what real society looks like, the way God intended things to be. Is all flipped on its head in Romans 1 type fashion where what was natural is now being um, unnatural and what's unnatural is being accepted as natural. And and that's, that's what the Bible defies. That's what God's word stands against. We want to be those who stand for truth and we can't protest truth. A wide road protest truth. We stand for truth. We... The, the world wants to be immoral and celebrate that. We stand for biblical morality, biblical righteousness, and we, we are those who protest the world for the sake of God and his glory. The wide road is the world's population, and the sheer volume of it makes it wide, and everyone is headed to destruction. What is destruction? That's eternal hell. For me to soft sell the word destruction is for me to not give the legitimate warning that Christ gives here at the end of his sermon. The wide road leads to destruction. This word is explicitly used in the New Testament to refer to where false teachers are going. Uh, Philippians 128, and not frightened in anything. This is fearless Christianity. We're not frightened by anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them, to our opponents, of their destruction, but of of your salvation. So you're saved forever. People are just being destroyed forever, and that from God. Hebrews 10.39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Destruction is not annihilation. The Bible doesn't speak of annihilationism. It speaks of eternal death in the lake of fire where unbelievers are sent. Rebellious people are sent forever and ever. Second Peter 3, 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment. And here it is, the destruction of the ungodly. 
Revelation 17, 8, the beast, this is what we referenced before, the beast or the Antichrist, that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. They're duped thinking the beast is Jesus when it's a false substitute. The place of destruction is terrible. It's awful. It's hard to think that anyone could ever be sent there. But the wide road is where people are going there by. It's not few people that go to hell. I have to reframe that in my own mind when I think about how horrible hell is. It's eternal. It's forever. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, misery. Unending. And this is where people are going. And I, I think of uh, the analogy of the five freeway. If you've ever been on the five freeway in California or from Seattle down all the way to the border um, the five freeway, a lot of times, is six lanes wide, maybe even more, and people are usually going down at about 80 miles an hour. And are in in Southern California, are driving that, you know, mindlessly, thoughtlessly, just driving. You know, I've driven it a lot, um, having gone to school there and lived there. And and you know, you're just driving along, and and people are checked out as they're driving very fast. And that's a picture of where people are in the world. They're just driving as if they're on the five freeway, the wide road that leads to destruction. They're going and going and going, but this road, instead of ending at the border, goes off a cliff. And cars are just spilling over and over and over and over, lives and souls going into eternal destruction. It's a seducing culture that wants you to be distracted from these two roads. You have to think in terms of these two roads to understand the significance and importance here of really what is going on. The world society right now, I'm convinced, is dividing our country is dividing itself under the um, issue of racism. It seems like every public speaker um, all the way to our president is speaking in terms of racism. Everything is understood in terms of the category of where you are on racism. And that really is a, a distraction, I think a satanic distraction from the two roads that really divide us. There, there really is one division, and the division is you are in Christ, you are under Christ as a believer, or you're anything else. You're under Satan, you're under the world system. That's the dividing line. That's what divides us. What unifies us is being under Christ and on the narrow road together. If we're on the road together, we're one, we're unified not saying there isn't hatred to be um, addressed. I've addressed that from the pulpit, and we should address it with the gospel. The gospel repenting of hatred and loving one another is the, the saving um, issue in terms of race or, race or ethnicity, I should say. To be precise with it, people come from different ethnic backgrounds, just like people come from different social backgrounds. People come from different ge- geographical backgrounds or cultural or language backgrounds. All those things are true, but we are one in Jesus Christ that's solved by people repenting of their hate towards one another, repenting to God for that. Even the Apostle Peter, as I mentioned from the pulpit not too long ago, had to repent of dealing with hatred towards Gentiles. 
He disfellowshipped himself. He moved away from table fellowship from Gentile believers, people who weren't ethnic Jews. He separated himself and Paul confronted him to his face and said, repent of that. So I, I agree. We need to repent of hatred and hating people because of their ethnic background. And we need to replace that with love, right? But, but that is not the national crisis. That is not the crisis of our world. The crisis of our world is people are not on the narrow road. They need to get off the five freeway. No offense to the five. They need to, they need to get on the narrow road and become family in Christ. I was uh, putting together my um, summer plans. Um, we're going to travel east for a couple weeks. And I, um, you know, Junie and I were talking through plane tickets and miles and, and comp fares. I mean, I know you never struggle with this stuff or deal with this, right? Yeah, we all do, right? And you get on, eventually you throw your hands up and get on with an agent. And the agent's going, I can't help you, you know. And you can look at your own computer screen and then you're timed out and, you know, and all of that's happening. And so Judy tried and then she, she, you know, took a break. And then I just called to get some recon from another agent that I knew wouldn't be able to help me. But I'm just trying to get my head around what I'm trying to pull off. And uh, as I invest into Alaska Airlines and get stock there. Um, but but I, I called and this lady answered and we're talking and she's trying to figure it out. And, you know, I've got these kids and this situation and these miles and and she was very helpful. And I finally, you know, I said, yeah, I'm a pastor up here in Anchorage. I typically make that, you know, jump. And, and she goes, oh, what kind of church? And I was like, well, you know, a non-denominational kind of Bible church. We love the preaching of God's word. And she said, oh, really? Yeah. She said, my, my husband's a preacher. I'm a pastor's wife. Really? Yeah. And he, he preaches in Idaho here at a Bible church. And I'm like, really? I said, yeah, I went to seminary at Master Seminary. Oh, my husband did too. Really? Yeah, yeah. When did you graduate? Yeah. And so, you know, I used to work at the college. And so suddenly we know like 50 people in common, like, like the guy, the husband went to school with you guys. I mean, you don't even know that. Yet. I mean, it's just, we're just, we're just talking, but suddenly your family, not just because of schools and stuff, but because of doctrine, you just know, you believe the same stuff. And you know, you know, and we can't talk about it there. I mean, we're, we're doing our thing, but all of a sudden she can do the stuff that the other agent couldn't do. Go figure. It's amazing. Oh, I got this. I got this. I'll handle this for you. It's fine. I'll get this done. And, you know, go get Judy from the backyard. Suddenly it's family. You know, we're speakerphone. Hey, yeah, you know, let's figure this out. Long lost cousins. That's, that's Christianity. But that's being part of the narrow road together. I remember when we used to fly, um, when we first came up here, we flew with all six and, you know, two twins that are two year, or twins that were two, Owen that was strapped to Judy, right? And then we had a nine-year-old, seven-year-old, and five-year-old, and then we're all just going in and walking into a, a terminal area, giving everyone, you know, panic attacks and, and all kinds of post-traumatic stress because we're just oblivious to what we're doing to people with all our group, you know, and going on and surviving and just trying try not to lose anybody, you know, in, in the moment. And so in that moment, you come to the all important message that comes over the PA as you finally strap in and you're, you're buckled in and everybody's accounted for. This flight is departing from O'Hare airport, for instance, traveling to Anchorage. If you are not traveling to Anchorage, now is the time to get off. You know that message? And I think to myself, 
what would that look like? What? What? I'm going to Anchorage? I thought I was going to, you know, Paducah, Kentucky. Wow, I got on the wrong, you know, and, and they would get off and it would be embarrassing. But if I was on a flight with six kids and spouse and was going to the wrong part of the globe, I would get off. I would be, I would be inconvenienced. I would step over people. I'd find my luggage and get off and I would find the right plane and I would work hard and do that. It's, that's a lot easier than being, you know, on the other side of the world doing that. That's what that announcement's about. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you're on the wrong plane. You need to get up and get off and get on the right plane. You're on the wide road that leads to destruction. You need to get on the narrow road. Verse 14, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. It's hard. It's conspicuous to be a Christian. It's out loud to be a Christian. And those who find it are few. But the ones who find it, they find life. Listen to what the disciples said in John 6, 66. They said this to Jesus. And after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus talked to crowds and then they went away because they didn't want him. They left. And so suddenly it goes from like 500 or thousands to, you know, 12 people. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's what it looks like to side with Jesus. The crowds are gone. It's a narrow road. We're siding with Jesus. 